Well, good morning officially. Thank you. It's good to be with you all today. And as we begin, uh, have you ever noticed how the most criminally underdeveloped part of just about every manual is the troubleshooting section? The amount of, I think, mechanical idealism in the world is quite staggering. If you have projects that go like a lot of mine, it's kind of like this. Oh no, the widget isn't working. Uh, This widget is expensive and important, therefore I should like to fix the widget. And so you begin to disassemble the widget until you find the doohickey. And the doohickey is completely destroyed. And not ever having repaired a widget like this before, you consult the manual and you turn to the section on doohickey maintenance. And there it is, how to buy, how to install, how to admire. And then finally, ah, here it is, doohickey troubleshooting. Let's see. It says, care should be taken not to allow any damage to come to the doohickey. Otherwise, widget may malfunction. Anybody ever read that manual? I know how it's supposed to look, right? I know how it's supposed to function, but mine is busted. So now what? Brothers and sisters, I have good news for us all. The Bible is not an idealistic book. It doesn't just paint a rosy picture of the way that things should look and then leave us thumbing helplessly through the pages, trying to figure out what to do when things go wrong. The Bible has extensive so-now-what sections, and our text this morning is one of them, and for that I am grateful. So I invite you to take your copy of God's Word and begin to turn to 1 Corinthians 7. We're going to begin this morning in verse 8 as we continue to work our way through Paul's discussion of marriage in a genuinely messy world, in a world where things are not always idealistic. And he's going to walk us through today some of the practical answers to many of the common questions that we have about marriage. And so this morning, if you're here and you're single, or perhaps you're remarried, perhaps you're happily married, or perhaps you're struggling in your marriage, perhaps you're married to a believer, or perhaps you're married to an unbeliever, or perhaps you're some combination of all of the above, this morning Paul has helpful wisdom for us all. And so I'd invite you to honor the reading of God's Word, to take your copy of God's Word and stand, and we will read together 1 Corinthians 7, 8 to 16. Paul writes this beginning in verse 8, But I say to the unmarried and to widows that it is good for them if they remain even as I, but if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn. But to the married I give instructions, not I but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband, but if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your grace as we come to this passage. We understand that 
these truths in this area is fraught with so much for so many and tangled up so deeply in, in much human suffering and difficulty and confusion. And yet, Lord, we are thankful that you have given to us all that is necessary for life and for godliness in your word. Give us the humility to receive it and to understand it and to live it out so that we may not only experience your approval and blessing as we are honoring you, but so that we may experience the goodness of your grace working its way out in our lives. And even as Paul says here, to leave the door wide open for you to do gospel work in seemingly hopeless situations. And so we ask that you would do this for your name's sake, by the power of your spirit and to the honor of your son in whose name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we read through our text this morning, you probably noticed that Paul's working methodically here through different categories of people. Indeed, there's three different specific groups that he's addressing when it comes to their relationship to marriage. And that's going to be our outline for the morning is Paul's instruction to each of those three groups. And so if you've got your notes, we'll begin with the first category he mentions, which are those that are not currently in a marriage. And so if you want to fill your blanks in our first point this morning from verses eight and nine is, are you unmarried? You're free to choose. You're free to choose. Look with me again at verses eight and nine, where he says, but I say to the married, to the unmarried and to the widows that it is good for them to remain even as I. But if they do not have self-control, let them marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Who's he addressing here? Well, one side's pretty easy to figure out, the widows, those who have been previously married, and now they are not due to a death. Uh, Who is he referring to with the unmarried term? A lot of debate and discussion. It certainly has principles that apply to anybody who's in any state of singleness. I think in this context, for a variety of reasons that uh, Mike Powell told me I took too long explaining first service, so I'm abbreviating them here, but you can come check my notes later if you're curious. I think for a variety of reasons, the primary group he means by that term is actually widowers, that he's primarily addressing with this group those who have been previously married and lost a spouse. He's going to deal with specific instructions to those who have never been married a little bit later in the chapter and to those who are single for other reasons later in our passage this morning. So applicable to all of singleness, but I think that's primarily who he has in mind. So to those who have experienced the loss of a spouse, what advice does Paul have to give? And this is the short version. You're free to remain single or get married as you desire. That's the short version. And Paul gives it in the way of two recommendations. His first recommendation is to consider remaining single as he himself is. Some have speculated from this that perhaps Paul is alluding to the fact that he may have been a widower. Some have wondered, given Paul's ambitions and the Jewish leadership hierarchy, a hierarchy he had moved his way up quite a ways through, if you read Galatians 1.14, that if he had his eyes set on the Sanhedrin, or perhaps had even attained to being a part of the Sanhedrin, he would have been required by Jewish law to be married. And so perhaps Paul had actually already experienced bereavement by the death of a spouse. And here he's coming alongside the Corinthians and speaking to those in their congregation and saying, hey, I can understand where you're coming from. Those of you that have lost a spouse, I understand what that's like. And I just want to give you the freedom to remain single, even as I am. I don't think that's a required reading of the text. What is clear is that Paul is not encouraging the widows and widowers here in Corinth to rush to remarry. And that would have been somewhat countercultural. In the Roman culture in particular that they found themselves in there in Corinth, the higher up the social ladder you went, the more pressure there was on to remarry quickly after the death of a a spouse. For women in particular, 
it was often the expectation that you were to remain single no more than six months before you were expected societally to have been remarried to settle issues, legal issues of uh, the estate and, and heirs and all of that social stuff. There was pressure from the society that it is not good to remain single if you have once been married. And Paul here is giving them that freedom. He says, hey, that's not God's rule. If you have lost a spouse and you find that in your heart there is now a desire for singleness and for the unique way that you can serve God as a single, then you are free to remain as you are, unmarried. And then his second option that he gives is if you want to get married, then you should. Some who have been married and then are made single by the will of God receive at that time the gift of singleness. And that's great. They're content in that singleness. They enjoy employing that season for unique adventures. But for other people, not so much. Not so much. Paul acknowledges that some are not cut out for the adventures of a single life. And to them, he speaks about as straightforwardly as you can. Marriage is a lot better than burning. To try to live in self-imposed singleness when that is not the gift God has given you is not smart. And I'll admit, at first blush studying this passage, it struck me as a rather negative tone that Paul is taking here, almost like a begrudging condescension than a real freedom, kind of like, hey, you guys should be married, but uh, I mean, if you're a wimp, I guess marriage is an option. You know, kind of like your parent, like, I mean, you could take another cookie. I don't think that's what Paul is trying to communicate. I think this is a real freedom, and it's, it's a real freedom perhaps clarified by a few observations here or disclaimers. The first is that a freedom is a freedom even if it comes with some disclaimers. Like if you have permission to do something, even if it's permission that comes with some cautions and some background information, it's still a freedom. Paul is granting a genuine freedom here. But secondly, I've come to think I don't, it is not as negative in the Greek as it can perhaps sound in the English. And and particularly so when you consider that Paul is referring in some part back to that mantra that he's been correcting from 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 with all those people in Corinth that were taking up this it's good for a man not to touch a woman mantra and then using that as an excuse to just destroy their marriages and their intimacy. And so Paul's emphasis here may be taken as another pushback on their anti-marriage, anti-intimacy error. It's kind of like him saying, so some of you are just sitting there preaching the virtues of singleness with this stoic pride when really you've been given such a burning desire for marriage that I can smell the smoke coming out of your ears from here. So just go get married already. And third, I do believe that Paul is particularly keen on emphasizing the goodness of singleness to the Corinthians at this time because of the current circumstances of the Corinthian church. Later in this chapter, in verse 26, you'll see Paul again there discussing the value of not changing your marital status, quote, in view of the present distress. And so some of the emphasis here, not a difference in principles, but some of the emphasis on these principles is informed by what is most wise in view of the current difficulties facing the Corinthian church. So to summarize, for those who are widows or widowers, you have complete freedom to decide your marital future. Check your heart. Has God replaced your desire for marriage with a contentment in singleness and a heart to use the unique freedoms of singleness for his service? If so, don't feel guilty if you choose not to remarry. That is a choice that honors God. If, however, you come to realize that despite your resting in God, and that's a key provision, 
right? None of us should make a major life decision because our hearts are discontent in Christ. But if we are able to say that I am content in whatsoever circumstance I am, as Paul said, I'm content in whatever God ordains, but despite that resting in God, there is a burning desire for the joys of marriage still, then do not refuse to remarry if God provides a good opportunity. Be wise, understand some of the different dynamics that come with remarriage as opposed to marriage in the first place, but don't just sit there and burn. Accept willingly the gift God has given you. And a brief note here today for those who are unmarried and never have been married, for the singles in the room who are looking forward perhaps to marriage, uh, some have taken this passage and misused it quite dreadfully. This passage is not saying to a young person that if you find yourself unable to restrain sexual temptation, then you should just pursue marriage as fast as you can with whoever you can get to say yes, because that's better than burning in your lust. Don't ever, 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 ever do that. That kind of out of control enslavement to sin is not the burning that Paul is referring to. You won't find anywhere in scripture that God wants you to satisfy an idolatrous appetite with one of his good gifts. He alone can be worshipped and he alone can be the object of any great human desire because he alone satisfies. Every young person is to learn to possess his or own vessel with sanctification and honor and he or she cannot safely pursue a marriage with anyone else until that skill has been learned. If you have the gift of marriage, get married. If you have an out-of-control lust problem, put it to death before you do anything else. So with that little asterisk in place, it is a good time to turn to Paul's second category of married people, and that is those who are married in Christ. Look at verses 10 and 11 where Paul writes, But to the married I give instructions, not I, but the Lord, that the wife should not leave her husband. But if she does leave, she must remain unmarried, or else be reconciled to her husband, and that the husband should not divorce his wife. So who again here is Paul talking to? Well, he says, to the married. Any married? Well, there's a specific category here, because in the verses that follow, he's going to say, now I want to talk to those who are in an unequally yoked situation, where you have a believer and an unbeliever who are married together. And so here, I think it is quite clear that Paul is specifically speaking to those who are married in Christ, to Christians who are married. And and I think there's something even instructive in the fact that Paul is assuming that understanding. If he's talking to a church and he says, I want to talk to the married, he's assuming that they understand that that is to be Christians married to Christians. In fact, in 2 Corinthians 6.14, he's going to make that very explicit. Only believers should marry unbelievers. Is that because all unbelievers are super mean and nasty people and they can't be nice? No, of course not. That's silly. But it does mean because for a true oneness of soul, you need to have two souls that are both alive and love the same thing the most. And that can only happen in Christian marriage. And one last little phrase here that often raises eyebrows is the mention that this advice is not Paul, but the Lord. This instruction is somehow qualified as being not from Paul, but from Jesus. And I think some take this to mean, hold on a sec, Paul. So what you're telling me is that these two verses I have to pay attention to because now the Lord's talking, but everything else on both sides is optional. Well, no. Obviously, if you've been with us for long, studying through 1 Corinthians, 
Paul has not had a particularly optional tone, has he? He's understood that his commands are commands. So if he's fine being commandy all throughout his book, why is he making this distinction here? And it's for a quite simple reason. Unlike some of the other scenarios that Paul's been giving instruction on, this aspect of marriage was directly addressed by our Savior himself when he was on the earth. And so Paul is acknowledging that this command is not new revelation. It's an echo of the words of Jesus. One of the clearest places we see those words is in Matthew 19. And we'll have it up on the screen for you. You can follow along. Some Pharisees came to Jesus, Matthew 19, beginning in verse 3, testing him. This is what they like to do in Corinth. They're dealing with real world problems, real world relationships. The Pharisees, however, like to invent hypotheticals just to mess with you. This is a game that they enjoyed until they met Jesus. And then they learned to regret it. Some Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and asking, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any reason at all? And he answered and said, and now he's going to set the biblical framework for what will be three principles. Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. Jesus says, this is basic stuff, guys. There are men and there are women and God made them and they come together and they become one flesh. Is that ringing a bell, right? And so the Pharisees are like, this is kindergarten stuff. What are you talking about, Jesus? So then he applies it in three principles. First principle is in verse six. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. First principle don't divorce. Don't divorce. What a marriage is, is a two becoming one by God. And what a divorce is, is a man having the audacity to rip that apart. Jesus says, don't do it. Second principle is in verse seven. They said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? Right? They, they just completely ignore what he has just told them. They're like, oh, but, 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 but I've got an exception. And he said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it has not been this way. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. So like, hey, but right there in the law, rules about divorce. Boom, take that, Jesus. And Jesus says, yeah, God governs all kinds of sin. Because you are so hard-hearted that even though you should never dare to rip apart what God's joined together, you do. And so God has laws to protect people in the case of you doing what you should not be doing. This is not God's design that you would be divorced. This is God's protection plan because you do what you should do not, what you should not do. And I'm telling you that if you do that and you were to remarry, you're an adulterer. Ouch. So the second principle, if you divorced, which you shouldn't have, remain single. And the third principle comes from verse 10. The disciple said to him, the relationship with a man with his wife is like this. It is better not to marry. The disciples are fun. But he said to them, not all men can accept this statement, but only those to whom it has been given. 
For there are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb, and there are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept it. The third principle is if that sounds hard, stay single. Right? People are standing around like, wait a minute, Jesus. We can't just swap wives whenever they burn the toast. Man, if you're stuck with her that long, it's just better to stay single. Jesus says, in that case, yes, your terms are acceptable. This is hard. If you're going to enter into a marriage, it is serious. And that means it may be difficult. And if you're not willing to do that, then it looks like you're a eunuch for the kingdom. And embrace it. And so Paul is simply pointing a thumb at Jesus and saying, yeah, what he said. Are you in a Christian marriage and suddenly suspect that perhaps you do have the gift of singleness after all? Or perhaps at least a temporary blessing of the gift of singleness until someone comes along who has the character quality of being not your current spouse. To this person, Paul says, using the hypothetical example of the wife here, the wife should not leave her husband. So what do you do then when you find yourself in a hard marriage, even with a believer? You begin by locking down everything that God says is not an option and then taking full advantage of everything that he has given to help. Ask yourself, do I have biblical grounds for divorce because of ongoing unrepentant fornication or a divorce abandonment by my spouse? And if the answer is no, then divorce is not an option. Remove that desire from your heart. Remove that word from your vocabulary. As my great-grandma was uh, quoted as often saying, divorce is not in our vocabulary. Murder, maybe, but never divorce. Your marriage in this case is not a problem to escape. It is a problem you need to solve. Should I just then tough it out by setting up distractions and distance, set up hobbies and service opportunities and community involvement and fill our lives with all this busyness that keeps us apart as much as possible so we don't fight so much? Do, do we just indulge in the escapism of media and books and other things to replace the lack of intimacy that should be in our relationship? Do we just draw a line down the middle of our room, down the middle of our finances, down the middle of our lives, and we each just stick to our own side? None of those are options. If we understand what marriage is all about, how can we settle for that kind of a relationship if what a marriage is is two becoming one and if what a marriage pictures is the gospel of Jesus Christ and his relationship with the church? We cannot let our marriages be a picture of the gospel when they're actually a reenactment of the Cold War. So if we can't run and we can't hide... What do we do? Fight for your marriage. Not fight in your marriage. Fight for your marriage. Where do you start? Start with prayer. Because it is often the hardest step in this whole process to get your heart to a place where it is willing to humbly engage. Ask God to give you that humility, to give you that hope, to give you a heart of trust in Him so that you are ready to humbly Begin obeying whatever it is that God would have you to do. 
and then seek wise counsel. Call your life group leader. Call the church. Call the bridge ministry. Tap an older couple on the shoulder here at church this morning who looks like they know what they're doing and just say, can we talk? Truly, the stakes are too high and the chance for real peace and blessing is too real to delay one more day than necessary in getting help. That's why God puts us all together because we all so often need it and so he makes sure that it's all around us. But some of you this morning may be wondering, okay, that sounds great, but it's too late for me because I was in a difficult situation and there was a whole bunch of things going on and I bailed. I, I said, I'm done. I quit. I divorced. And, and as I look back on that, I realize I divorced when I shouldn't have. What, what does that mean for me? Is it just over? Am I finished? Well, don't worry. God's word has you covered. If you're a Christian who realizes you divorce someone for a reason that God does not allow, and those reasons would be ongoing sexual immorality and an abandonment through divorce, if you're in that position, then, then stop. Freeze. Paul says, remain as you are. Remain single. Don't add another sinful decision to a previous sinful decision. That's one of the most basic principles in dealing with the messiness of all of life is when you realize that you're doing something you shouldn't be doing, stop. <laughs> Just stop. We've probably all been in that situation. You're using a tool or you're working on something and all of a sudden it just starts going really wrong really fast. And the temptation is to start pulling all the levers and mashing all the buttons and hoping that it'll fix it. That doesn't usually make the problem better, does it? And almost invariably, somebody who knows what they're doing will walk along and go, just stop, <laughs> just stop, don't move. Yes, it's a huge mess, and there's no button on that machine that will clean it up, but you can make it a lot worse. Just stop, and then figure out what God wants you to do. And so Paul says, hey, if you realize you've been making a, a bad decision or a string of sinful decisions, stop and remain where you're at. Or else, be reconciled to your husband. Those, those are your options. And that may be one of the most difficult and one of the most freeing things for, for some of us is to realize that I've got in my life a string of decisions or a bad decision that I've been trying to justify and explain away and even thinking about it and revisiting it just makes me want to say, I won't, I can't, I shouldn't, it's too hard. And God is saying, just stop acknowledge where you're at acknowledge what has taken place where there was sin confess it and find forgiveness and where you need grace to be faithful now in the present it's yours for the asking and how freeing that could be for some of us to lay a pricked conscience to rest finally after perhaps many years of wrestling and I am fully aware that these are harder truths than I can personally understand. And that may make it difficult to hear these words, especially for some of you who understand the hardship here only too well. And, and to you, I would simply plead, would you look to Christ for your hope in these things? Has anyone ever treated a spouse worse 
than the bride of Christ treated him when he came for her. I submit to you that nobody ever has been so unfaithful, so full of reviling, so full of murder. Jesus is sympathetic to the heartache of your struggle. He's known it. And yet if Jesus is powerful enough to bring his own marriage to the church to fullness of joy and spotless righteousness, then is he not powerful enough to work miracles in your marriage if you are willing to trust him and obey him no matter what? And so because you trust him, indeed because you love him, will you not consider what steps of obedience he would have for you regardless of what your spouse does, and leave the results up to him. I want us to notice as well briefly here at the end of verse 11 that Paul reminds us that this principle, he's been using the example of the wife as the illustration, but it's not limited to wives. Christian marriage is unto death, whether you're male or female. And so he reminds us, this all applies to the husbands too. And if you have not lived up to that expectation in a sinful way, then would you deal with that reality directly and biblically so that you can enjoy the peace that comes from a clear conscience? Perhaps though you fall into Paul's third category of people and are particularly distressed since you're not only facing the challenges of marriage in general, but you're also doing so spiritually alone. Um, We close today by looking at Paul's instruction to the unequally yoked Look with me, your third point this morning in your outline. If you're unequally yoked, pursue peace. In verses 12 to 16, and Paul begins by saying, but to the rest I say, not the Lord. Once again, signaling that he's shifting from what Jesus had explicitly taught back to more new revelation and instruction. And that instruction begins this way, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. And you can understand why some would believe that marriage to an unbeliever would be a reason for a divorce because after all, they, they are spiritually alive and their spouse is not. How, how can this marriage possibly work under such circumstances? And that would seem to even be increased when you look at Paul's argument in 2 Corinthians 6.14 that we referred to earlier where Paul writes, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness or what fellowship has light with darkness And as is often observed, that word to be bound together literally means to be unequally yoked. If you're plowing your fields, it's very important how you pair your animals together. If you have an ox and a donkey, they're both formidable beasts of burden in their own right. But if you yoke an ox and a donkey together, you're going to have trouble. You're not going to be able to plow in a straight line because they can't pull the same way. And both of those beasts are going to suffer because the chafing that will be induced by the differences in the animals will be constantly this tug of war. And so they'll be miserable. Your field will be a mess. And so Paul says, don't be unequally yoked. And so there was some in Corinth then that could say, hey, you know, let's just call a mulligan, right? Let's let's just say that this isn't going to work and let's admit that this is a defeat and let's just start over. Uh, the evangelistic dating strategy failed again. And uh, for those of you young people in the room, do not ever, ever, ever date an unbeliever. You will find your heart in a place you didn't think your heart could be, and you may find yourself in a marriage 
that you will spend the rest of your life regretting because you chose to pursue temporary happiness over a love for Christ that is controlling. Do not date evangelistically. Or perhaps you were married before you'd ever heard of Jesus, but now that you've come to know Jesus Christ, you realize your heart's in a very different place than your spouse who does not know Jesus Christ. Or, or perhaps you thought you were married to a believer. There may have been some warning signs, but it seemed like it's on the up and up, and then just a few years into marriage, it's quite clear that you guys are not on the same spiritual page. For whatever reason, you find yourself in a marriage where you're not equally yoked. And some of these people here in Corinth would probably be surprised, knowing Paul's strong teaching on the importance of Christian marriage, to hear him say, no, do not get a divorce. Do not get a divorce. Remain married as long as the unbelieving spouse is willing to remain. That's how important a marriage covenant is. Even when it has been entered into wrongly, when it has come to be unequally yoked following a conversion, whatever the reason, it is still a sacred thing to be preserved, if at all possible. And more than that, it is also an opportunity for God's grace and blessing to be on display in a unique way. Look at verse 14 there. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife, and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. And this verse can trip us up if we are taking Paul to mean more than he means here. Is Paul teaching here that marriage to a Christian spouse confers immediate secondhand salvation to the unbelieving spouse and to the children in the home? Well, this is Paul, ladies and gentlemen, glaring at you with his eyebrow raised, the author of Ephesians and Romans, and he has that, have you read anything else I've ever written look on his face? No. Paul doesn't believe in secondhand salvation. And one of the reasons that we know that is because in the very next two verses, he's going to say, wouldn't it be nice if your influence in the home saved them? So what is he talking about? Spiritual blessing, salt and light, grace and peace. A godly spouse should consider that their presence in a marriage, even an unequally yoked marriage, brings a holy blessing, a sanctification, a setting apart to that marriage. It, it brings God into that relationship in a way in which he would have been otherwise absent and that this is a good thing. This is a gracious thing. And similarly, a godly spouse in a home brings a cleansing blessing, it says here, upon the children in that home. And if you take a godly spouse out of a home and leave it with only an unbelieving parent, you have taken away something very important and something very precious for those children. It is a great blow. Never underestimate the powerful influence of even a single godly presence in a home, Paul is teaching us here. And never remove that presence by divorce unless God explicitly allows for it, and there is no other way. One of those explicit allowances is mentioned next in verse 15. Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. This verse is the clearest and most emphatic exception, allowing for divorce in all of the scriptures. It's the only place in scripture you will find a command related to divorce. If you are a believing spouse and your unbelieving spouse says, I'm leaving you and divorces you, it says, let them go. Let them go. A footnote, do not provoke the abandonment. This is not, if I'm irritating long enough, it'll be their fault. 
But this is if you have said, I am going to be as Christ has called me to be in this relationship. If you're the husband, I'm going to sacrificially love my wife as Christ would love the church. And I'm going to give myself for her. And I'm going to demonstrate the fruit of the spirit to her. And she says, that's just not the kind of guy I'm interested in. I'm out. Just let her go. And if the wife is loving her husband and she's submitting to him as an act of worship to God and she's demonstrating the fruit of the, of the spirit to her husband and loving him in sincerity and he says, that's just not the kind of woman I want to live with. I'm out. She is to let him go. And in such cases, Paul very clearly says they are free from the obligations of that previous marriage covenant. They are not under bondage in such cases. They may then go and choose to remain single or to marry as they see fit. But all in all, that's a pretty narrow exception, isn't it? Paul is working very hard not to find as many opportunities for divorce, but to find as many opportunities as he can to bolster the commitment of marriage. In any case in which marriage is possible to preserve, preserve it. Marriage to a believer, marriage to an unbeliever, easy marriages and hard marriages, your first marriage or your third marriage that you were already ready to give up on and then you realize that God takes this seriously and you need to start taking this seriously. Paul's going to leave the Corinthians here with a very simple principle that directs all of this and will give them a hopeful truth to send them on their way as they go to apply this in what will be very difficult situations. But I do think we need to pause before we get to that principle briefly and address an elephant in the room on this topic. We've talked about unrepentant sexual immorality and abandonment through divorce as situations in which a marriage may end with one spouse being free from guilt and obligation and able to remain single or married as desired. But what about a marriage in which a spouse is only too willing to remain married, but in a wicked and abusive way? That word abuse is everywhere right now. And trying to pin down any single definition is very difficult. At its root, the word simply means to use wrongly, to use something wrongly. And in a relationship that takes place anytime one person seeks to use another person in a way they are not entitled to and to accomplish that with means they are not entitled to use. And that makes it a very broad category. Any parent that is yelling in anger at a child to get them to do what they want is abusing their authority. That is sin and it is not allowed. And it goes from there all the way up to one spouse physically beating another spouse. All such abuse is sinful. All such abuse is wrong. Some sins are worthy of hell, but not worthy of jail. Other sins are worthy of hell and worthy of jail. And so all abuse is wrong, but there are different kinds and different levels of seriousness of an abuse. But I want to say as a blanket statement, if you are in a situation where you are being abused, that is not normal, that is not acceptable, and this passage is not teaching you that that is something simply to be tolerated. If you are in such a situation or think you may be in such a situation, please talk to a trusted life group leader, to our pastoral team, to our bridge ministry, and do that today. Do that before you make any big decisions and life changes. Do that before the situation escalates any further and list some help. Things like this are just too close to our hearts, too close to our emotions for any of us to see them and think through them clearly on our own. And that is why God gives us a church family so that we may help one another understand the will of God and walk through those difficult circumstances 
not alone. And I would also clarify that if you are in a situation that has become physically dangerous, where you or your children are in imminent risk of harm, this passage is not requiring you to stay and be used as an object of wickedness. If you need an escape, get word in whatever way you can or need to, to our church leadership, and we will find a safe place for you to stay right now for as long as you need. Because in God's economy, a true victim always has the right to flee and seek relief. Even where you do not have biblical grounds for divorce, you may have an immediate need to escape the situation immediately. And I want to give you one extreme example of that. If you were to try to think of the most potentially hopeless, the most potentially trapped relationship two people could possibly be in, you'd be looking at an example of an abusive slave owner and a slave being abused. This is a person that would be considered property. And did you know that in Deuteronomy 23:14, God actually commanded his people, he gave them a law that if a slave ran away from a slave owner to seek relief in any home in all of Israel, they were forbidden to return that slave to its master. Not because God rejected the institution of slavery. And that's a conversation for another time. He's not saying it's not because they're not a slave, but because you're not allowed to abuse anyone for any reason. And there's always an opportunity, no matter what your station in life, to seek relief when you are the target of wickedness. So what does it say that even a person who was considered owned by another person had the right to flee and find shelter if needed? They didn't investigate first and then help. They helped first and then they investigated. And if that's how God worked to protect the lowliest slave in an ancient Near Eastern culture, how much more so should there be protection for a spouse in distress or for children who are in danger? And if that's you, say you need help, help will be there. Do not abandon a marriage covenant without clear biblical grounds, but absolutely do get help and rescue if and when it is ever needed. I know that barely scratches the surface of a massive issue in our world and even in our church today. And there's so much more that can be said and so many specific circumstances with their own specific questions. God's word is sufficient for these things. So let us as Christians know his word so that we can minister it to others. And if you have questions, please come talk. Are you noticing a theme? You noticing a thing in there? As I was sharing some of these things with my wife last night, she was making the observation. It's amazing how many of these issues would be resolved if people would just have the conversations they need to. And that's true. So let's be a church that talks about these things, knows these things, and lives these things out. And I'll say something here as well that uh, we tell our youth fairly often. If you do come to talk to us, odds are very good you are not going to shock us. There is this perception that is almost universal that my issue is the first big, tangled, messy disaster that the world has ever seen. And it's not. It remains as true today as when it was written in Scripture that there still remains no big issue in the human life, in the human nature, that is not common to man. It may be very serious, it may be very hurtful, but it is common to man. And so let's talk about it. We're not going to walk away from you. We'll walk with you as you seek God's will. 
And that brings us, speaking of God's will, to Paul's place where he lands his discussion with this principle that undergirds everything he said. And that principle is quite simple. He says, God has called us to peace. God has called us to peace. That is the goal of every Christian in every relationship, more so and more so as those relationships become close and most of all within a marriage covenant. As Paul teaches in Romans 12:18, if possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. This is God's goal for his people. That's not easy. And sometimes your pursuit of peace is not responded to. But as far as it depends on any of us in any marriage that we find ourselves, as far as it depends on us, we are to be those who pursue peace. And that is not just a hopeless helpless suffering. Paul says that is a hopeful pursuit. In verse 16, for how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? There's the gospel hope that sustains a believer in the most seemingly hopeless and difficult marriage. Has God revealed his eternal will for your spouse? Well, if they're not dead yet, then the answer is no, he hasn't. And if they're still alive then is it not both possible and somewhat likely that your Savior may be indeed preparing a story of miraculous redemption in which you have the privilege of being the primary human representation of the good news spoken and lived out and eventually loved? It would be interesting if we could know how many of you this morning are sitting next to somebody whose life testimony is this verse in action. Our church is full of these couples where God has brought one and then the other. Never give up hope that that may be your story too, no matter how difficult or how long it is in the making. So to those who are unmarried this morning, use your freedom with intentionality and a clear conscience to marry or to remain single. To those who are married in Christ, Cling to your covenant. Keep short accounts with one another. Seek help early when needed. And to those who have come to realize that they are now or have been sinfully divorced, repent by confessing that sin. Enjoy the clear conscience of the forgiveness of God for that sin and honor Christ obediently in whatever circumstances you are now finding yourself in, whether as a single who needs to remain single or be reconciled or whether as somebody who is now in a new marriage covenant that you must honor the way you should have honored your first. And to those who are unequally yoked, it is okay to acknowledge that this is a difficult burden at times when two hearts designed to be one find that they do not have the same chief love. But do not lose heart and pursue peace always. Perhaps it will be through you, as Paul and Peter both remind us, that your spouse will stop straying and return to the shepherd and guardian of their soul. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask for your grace in our lives now in response to this. I pray for the young in the room that they would learn the lessons of the difficulties that can come when we do not place you first in all of our relationships and especially in those that head towards marriage. And I pray for those of us, Lord, who are married. May this remind us of the 
incredible stakes involved in our marriages and we would not be content to allow little things to just lie there, but we would keep short accounts with one another and seek that our marriages would be as full of the gospel as they possibly can be. And for those of us this morning, Lord, who find ourselves in various places where we have, we have suffered, perhaps we have sinned or been sinned against, where things are broken, I pray that where there needs to be conviction, you would apply conviction so that it would lead to true repentance that is then followed by seasons of refreshing that come from your hand. And Lord, where there just needs to be comfort, where you have called some to long suffering, would they find a joy in you, a blessedness in you that defies their circumstances? For those who need to be rescued, would you bring that to the light so that they can be? And may this be a church full of marriages that are so Christ-like, that the world can clearly see our Savior in the midst of our marriages and therefore in the midst of our church. And so we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand.